please turn to Daniel chapter 7. While you're turning, uh, Paul Lee Tan observes, both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with promises of the second coming of Christ. There are 1,845 references to it in the Old Testament, and a total of 17 Old Testament books give it prominence. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming, or one out of every 30 verses. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. The four missing books include three which are single chapter letters written to individual persons on a particular subject. And the fourth is Galatians, which does imply Christ coming again. For every prophecy of the first coming of Christ, there are eight on Christ's second coming. So today we're going to be looking at a key passage about Messiah's coming and the kingdom of God. I know I've said this many times, but actually Daniel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It really is. Uh, we're in the last chapter of the part of Daniel that had a particular message for the Gentile world. It's the last chapter in the Aramaic section. It would be in the language that would be commonly understood by all the different nations in that part of the world at that time. It began with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's going to end with Daniel's dream. It's interesting to note that Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue portrayed human empires from a human point of view. And what did he see? He saw a majestic statue made out of precious metals, or at least at the beginning. Daniel's dream shows human empires from God's point of view. And what does God say about them? They're monstrous wild beasts. They're scary. <laughs> In any case, Daniel concludes his message to the Gentiles as he began it by reminding them that after their temporary world empires would come God's eternal kingdom that will never pass away. So today we're going to look at the vision of the four beasts. Daniel begins this with a little bit of a historical introduction. He says, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Okay, the background for this vision is the first year of the co-regency of Belshazzar with his father Nabonidus. And we know that from history as being 553 B.C. Chronologically, that places this vision between the events of chapters 4 and 5. So Daniel's actually gotten out of historical sequence a little bit here in order to complete his theme. He's, um, if you will, doing a flashback. Okay. The vision itself, though, he begins to relate in, in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So the first thing he saw in his vision were winds from all directions stirring up the Mediterranean Sea. That, <laughs> that phrase, the great sea, refers to the Mediterranean. Normally the wind blows from only one direction. However, the, the phrase, the four winds of heaven, would refer to strong winds coming from every point of the map at once. You can imagine the vortex and the tempest that that would stir up in the waters. And the scripture oftentimes uses the sea 
to represent the Gentile world. That kind of makes sense if you think about it from Israel's standpoint, because what kept happening to them? People kept coming across the water, and it's usually bad news. You know, the Phoenicians came, the Philistines came, the Greeks came, then the Romans came. And it's, you know, all not good for Israel. So stuff that comes across the Mediterranean, not good, not good. So the Gentile world is stirred up by this wind. This is the tumultuous nature of the world powers. And that's the way it is, even today, is it not? The wind stirs up the Gentile powers. The second thing that Daniel saw were four strange beasts emerging from the sea. Each one of these beasts was was distinct from the other. And as, as we'll see, they represent four Gentile world empires that come before the kingdom of God comes. The beasts correspond to the medals in the statue that we saw in chapter 2. And since chapter 7 has more detail in it than chapter 2, it can kind of be used as a commentary, if you will, back on chapter 2. Oftentimes when I've taught Daniel, I've taught these simultaneously, chapter 2 and chapter 7, and refer back and forth because they enlighten each other. So Daniel proceeds to detail each beast in turn as it presented itself. The first was a lion. Daniel says in verse 4, the first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. He described the first beast as a lion with wings of an eagle. Now that represents the Babylonian Empire, which basically lasted um, in its independence from 605 to 539 BC. The lion was a popular Babylonian symbol. If you look, um, one of their gates that they reconstructed, the Ishtar Gate, has these blue glazed bricks with yellow lions, and they have row after row of them. So it's very definitely a Babylonian symbol. It's practically the national symbol. The lion's the king of the beasts, and the eagle's the king of the birds. And so basically this was, you know, Babylon's symbol. The wings were plucked from the lion, though, and it's made to stand up like a man, and a human mind was given to it. That probably refers to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation in Daniel 4. Um, but this kingdom corresponds to the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar's statue that he saw in his dream. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So there's no doubt that the Babylonian Empire is the first beast. The second beast was a bear. It says in verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Daniel described the second beast as resembling a bear, and that would represent the next world power, the Medo-Persian Empire, from basically 539 all the way down to 330 B.C., The bear's lopsided, he says, raised up on one side, kind of hunchbacked. That refers to the unequal power in the Medo-Persian Empire. Because though it was a partnership of the Medes and the Persians, the Persian side was much stronger. 
So the partners were equal, but one partner was more equal than the other. And that was Persia definitely was in control. The three ribs in the bear's mouth represent the three main areas that Persia conquered. And that was Lydia, Babylonia, and Egypt. So they were the ribs in the bear's mouth. Um, the bear, though, is told to arise, devour much meat. Now that got me thinking, because I was going, aren't bears normally herbivores? And, yeah, exactly. I, I did, when I researched that, actually, they often eat fish. Um, that's not, and they have definitely been known to attack other animals, and uh, even human beings, when hungry or when angered. Um, Come to, come to think of it, actually, I recall a story about a fellow on a, a trail bike chasing a bear cub that was a mistake. You'll have to talk to Mr. Ted about that one. Um, so they definitely will chase human beings anyway. Uh, okay. And this refers to the additional conquest of the Persians. They really conquered a lot of land. Um, the Medo-Persian Empire included the modern territories of Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, parts of Central Asia, Asia Minor, Thrace, Macedonia, most of the Black Sea coastal regions, Iraq, northern Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and all the significant population centers of ancient Egypt as far west as Libya. So they definitely conquered a lot of territory. They arose and devoured much meat. That corresponds in the statue to the silver chest and arms of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Now the next animal, Daniel said, I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Daniel described this third beast as a winged leopard, now that represents the Hellenistic period that began with the conquest of Alexander the Great. Um, the um, Hellenistic period then began about 330 BC and went all the way down to 30 BC. So they had a pretty long run also, longer than our country has yet. Um, the leopard, which is able to run at speeds up to 36 miles an hour, is noted for that speed. Imagine a winged leopard then. How fast would that be? Incredibly fast. Alexander's conquests were similarly rapid. In the years 334 to 326, Alexander conquered Greece, Egypt, the Middle East, Asia Minor, Persia, and part of northern India. The only thing that kept him from going further was that his troops rebelled. They said, you know, we're tired of this. We miss home. <laughs> Let's go back. But he, was, he wanted to go ahead and cross on into India proper. Alexander had defeated Darius III, the last Persian ruler, at the Battle of Gogamela. And the remainder of Persia surrendered by 330 BC. So the Greek Empire took over from the Persians. Now the four wings and the four heads of the beast refer to the division of Alexander's empire that came upon his death. In uh, 323 BC, his empire was divided after his death among his generals. He did not have an heir. Um, Lysimachus received Thrace and Bithynia. Um, Cassander received Macedonia and Greece. Seleucus received Syria, Babylonia, and all land to the east. 
and Ptolemy received Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia. And that would correspond in Daniel's and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, that would correspond to the belly and thighs of bronze. The Greek armaments were usually of bronze, and that was, you know, characteristic of them. So, we have the first three world powers, Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, and Greece. And that brings us down to the weirdest beast in Daniel's vision here. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, an, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Daniel described this fourth beast as a terrifyingly strong monster with large iron teeth. Daniel noted that that monster devoured, crushed, trampled everything in its path. It was different from all the previous beasts and it possessed ten horns. Now this beast represents the Roman Empire. We know that because that's what followed right after the Macedonian Greeks was the Roman Empire, and basically you can kind of look at that beginning at 44 BC. That was with Julius Caesar's uh, dictatorship, and it became an empire at that point. It had been a republic prior to that for a couple hundred years. The um, ending point, as we saw in our study of chapter 2, is kind of difficult to say exactly when Rome fell. Yeah, the Western Empire fell in 476, but the Eastern kept right on going for about another thousand years, until 1453. By the time the Eastern Empire fell, the Western em Roman Empire had started again with Charlemagne. And so we have Holy Roman Emperors, and back and forth and back and forth. And then you get all the way down to today, and you have the European Union. And you have European politicians talking about how they need to revive Rome. Hmm. Yeah, we may be seeing the first stirrings of what Daniel talks about here. Because he indicates prophetically there's going to be a revival of Rome immediately before the establishment of the kingdom of God. It's kind of like when you're approaching a mountain range. Say you're driving across uh, eastern Colorado. And it's pretty flat, but you can see mountains in the distance. You can't see the valleys in between the mountains. You just see mountain, mountain, mountain. And you'd, if you were closer, if you were up on one of those mountains, you might notice that there's a great big valley behind it. But that's not there, visible from your vantage point. In the same way, prophets oftentimes will skip periods of time because they just see the high points there. Um, our age is one of those valleys. You know, the time from Christ's first coming to the time of his second coming is a huge parenthesis in the plan of God. And how long that parenthesis is going to last, we don't know. Only the Father knows. So, at some point, there's going to be a revival of Rome right before the establishment of the kingdom of God. 
Now this corresponds to the legs of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue, but it also corresponds to another prophet who saw the same beast. It's a Revelation chapter 13 with the Apostle John. So if you want further description of the beast, I'll send you to Revelation 13. While Daniel was considering those ten horns, another small horn grew up among them. They actually uprooted three of the ten horns. That small horn was described as having eyes like a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So we know this is a human being, this is a human ruler that that, that horn represents. Then Daniel's vision shifted to heaven, actually. He said, I kept looking, verse 9, until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair off his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court set, and the books were opened. That's an ominous line. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Apparently, as he's seeing the heavenly court setting up for judgment, he still hears this little horn making boastful sounds, keeping it, all, keeping it up the last minute. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, verses 9 and 10 are actually in poetic format. And Daniel saw thrones set up and God taking his seat as judge. John recorded in Revelation 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on those thrones, I saw 24 elders setting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. The thrones were apparently for the elders of God's church, his church in heaven. The Ancient of Days is another name for God himself. It's been translated, the Ancient One who has lived for endless years. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Physics tells us that uh, you can't have time if you don't have matter moving through space. And before the Big Bang, you don't have either. So God, what was there before the Big Bang? Or as one friend of mine so poetically said, what, what, who made it go bang? God. God's there in eternity. He's there before time. He's the only before, before. <laughs> before there ever was before. Habakkuk asked, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? The Ancient of Days, the Everlasting God. The Apostle John describes Jesus Christ in his post-resurrection glory on similar terms as Daniel describes the Father here. John wrote, His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, 
Is he getting mixed up between God the Father and God the Son? Well, no. I, I don't think it's surprising because they have the same nature. But he is distinguishing the persons, as we'll see. God the Son is being presented to God the Father. The color white pictures purity, righteousness, absolute holiness. And the fire is a symbol of judgment. And the reference to wheels, by the way, in the ancient East, thrones were mounted on wheels. I guess they wanted to be able to move them around. But that flowing river of fire pictures judgment coming forth from God. Now, opening of the books refers to a couple of things. One would be, as in every court, God keeps records. Now, this is kind of a pictorial way of seeing the omniscience of God because does God need an information system? No. <laughs> but he does know everything. He does have record of everything for all time. Also, presumably the beast himself, the little horn, had records also. And his court records are being brought to bear in God's court. So the evidence is being assembled. The thousands upon thousands would be thousand time thousand would be a million. Um, myriads upon myriads or ten thousand. A myriad, myriados is ten thousand. So ten thousands times ten thousands or hundreds of millions. So this is a populous place, heaven is. Uh, John described the same scene. He said, then I looked in Revelation 5, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Okay. Yes, John was influenced by, Revel by uh, Daniel there. Uh, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. So Daniel was watching to see what was going to happen because as heaven's court is assembling, the boastful speaking the horn is doing is still going on. And then Daniel saw the beast's body destroyed in a burning fire. The Apostle John records this also in the book of Revelation. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into a lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Revelation 19.20 and then he also recorded a thousand years later that the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, present tense, a thousand years later, also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Daniel notes that the, the rule of the other beasts was taken away from them, their dominion, However, they were granted an extension of life. One way to look at that is that every time one of those kingdoms fell, they were incorporated into the next kingdom. When Babylon fell, it was absorbed into the Medo-Persian Empire. When the Medo-Persian Empire fell to Alexander the Great, it was incorporated into the Greeks. The Greeks incorporated, uh, excuse me, the Greeks were incorporated rather by the Romans when the Romans took over. So... There's always that extension of life, in a way, as each empire took over from the next. 
However, the last kingdom, Rome, is not going to be incorporated into God's kingdom. It's going to be destroyed. Which is why we know that this is yet future, because nothing like that ever quite happened. Rome did a fade out rather than a destroy, get destroyed. I mean, you know, it limped along, like I said, for a thousand years after the west fell, the east kept on limping along. And in fits and starts, it's been appealed to down through the history. So it never actually had a moment where suddenly, catastrophically, Rome was destroyed. Hasn't happened yet, but it will. It will definitely happen. And then the focus sharpens. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, this is in poetic form also. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel saw a human being. That's the simplest meaning of the phrase son of man. Just a human being coming on the clouds of heaven. But that's an incongruous picture. Because the clouds of heaven are what God's supposed to write on according to Psalms. So that would be something you would expect associated with deity, but there's a human being. Surprise. As a matter of fact, the New Testament quotes this verse more than any other verse from Daniel. One like the Son of Man was coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus identified himself with that Son of Man who would come on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 24 and 26, Mark 13, Mark 14, Luke 21. That's what Jesus said at his trial. I am the Son of God, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. The Apostle John also connected the vision with Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 14. Matter of fact, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's called the Son of Man 84 times in the Gospels. 84 times. By contrast, he's called Christ in the Gospels 50 times. And he's called Son of God 25 times. So he's called Son of Man more than he's called Christ and Son of God. Interestingly enough. But we see from Daniel here, this, this title, Son of Man, is not an, ambig not an ambiguous term just meaning human being. He is definitely claiming to be the Messiah when he calls himself Son of Man. The Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days. Again, that's God the Eternal Father, the Ancient One who has lived for endless years. And Daniel recorded that he was given the kingdom. He notes that his rule is going to be universal. All peoples, nations, men of every language. That kind of covers everything. Moreover, he explains that his rule is going to be eternal. That's an important contrast, isn't it? Because all these great empires, even Rome, if it drug on for 1,500 years, 2,000 years, 
know, even the great conquests of, of Alexander the Great, uh, even the great Persian Empire or Babylonian Empire, they were all temporary. They were a big deal at that time. But how long did they last? Not forever. Not forever. The kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to, is going to receive will never end. That's why I, want, I actually want to correct something a little bit because we focus on the first thousand years of it so much. Uh, the part that's called the millennium from thousand years uh, that we forget that it doesn't end there. There is a thousand year reign on this earth but then there's a new heavens and a new earth and the kingdom of God goes on forever. There is no end to it. 13 billion years into the future, the kingdom of God will still be going. And Jesus will still be on the throne. A couple of trillion years into the future, you know, there will be no end to it. That's why there has to be a new heavens and a new earth because, you know, what physics indicates, we couldn't get along this long in that one. And then the one we've got right now, we have to have a new heavens and a new earth. So... <laughs> But his kingdom is not going to pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. There's not any invader that's going to come in and destroy the kingdom of God. Can't happen. You know, I'm. Uh, I like. To, I consider myself a patriot. And I love my country. But you do realize that a democracy is not the ultimate form of government. A kingdom is. There's only one problem with kingdoms. And that is, there's only one person qualified to rule. The Lord Jesus Christ. So, that's why I used to have, until it wore out, a bumper sticker that said, Jesus for King. <laughs> because that's what we really need. Ultimately, all human governments fail. Ultimately, they're swept away. Ultimately, they fall. They disappoint. Now, that was Daniel's dream. And of course, that left him with a lot of questions on his mind. It said in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. vision, understandably, greatly distressed and alarmed Daniel. Uh, therefore, Daniel asked a bystander in the dream and asked him for clarification. This, be, this being probably was an angel. Uh, he explained the interpretation to Daniel. Now, this is real common in apocalyptic literature. Angels often provide explanations of the vision. So, the first thing he explained was four beasts, four kingdoms. Verse 17, these great beasts which are four in number are four kings who will arise from the earth. The angel provided Daniel with sort of an overview, if you will. So the explanation corresponds again to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of, ch of chapter 2. The beast represented those four successive world empires, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman. But then he moves on beyond that in verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom 
and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. After those four kingdoms, the kingdom of God would be established forever. Although the Son of Man receives the kingdom, his people also receive it. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now I want to be real clear on this. This is not talking about your entrance into the kingdom or salvation. But it's talking about the privilege of reigning with Christ or inheriting the kingdom. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Absolutely. But, whether or not you're qualified to inherit the kingdom or to rule with Christ, that is a reward. It is not automatic. There's an if on that. That's why Paul said, if we endure, we will reign with him. What a privilege is that? You know, people spend sometimes millions of dollars to try to become governors, senators, Congress people. Yeah. How would you like to be in the administration of the Son of God ruling the universe forever? Heavy position. Yeah, heavy position, definitely. I would not stoop to be the president yeah, from that. The kingdom of God is going to last forever. There, you know, the millennium and then there will be eternity with the new heavens. So that brings up further questions. Uh, especially about that fourth beast. That's, that fourth beast seems to have Daniel shook. It had me so shook that I tried to call it the third beast. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> it says verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful. With its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze. Which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Did you hear the violence there? Devouring, eating up. It eats up people, nations. It crushes them. Stomps on them, you know. And tramples them down. Yeah, that's uh, not something you want to mess with, this beast. And that was the image Rome tried to present, wasn't it? Don't mess with us. All those crucifixions, the huge armies, the discipline, was all one big message. Don't mess with us. I remember one time they were confronted with a Germanic tribe in the north that um, thought they were pretty secure because they were on the other side, I believe, of the Rhine River. So the Roman engineers, just to prove the point, built a bridge across the Rhine River um, by driving piles and, you know, and lashing all this wood together, built a fine bridge, marched over to the other side, beat up on the enemy, and then they marched back and disassembled the bridge just to prove they could do it. They didn't have any more trouble with those guys. They got the point. We can hit you, we can hit you hard anytime we want to. And they got the point across. That was how Rome was. It crushed, it trampled, it devoured, it destroyed. Daniel was consumed with curiosity about that. Now there's these claws of bronze. The bronze kind of harkens back to Greece and it makes me wonder if maybe this is a little hint at the Greek influence in Rome. Because Rome borrowed a lot from Greek culture. 
whatever. Uh, but also Daniel was curious, not just about the beast, but about the horns. It said in verse 20, And the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head, and another horn which came up, before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associate. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. God's people appeared to be losing. Matter of fact, Jesus said when he was talking about the tribulation, if the days hadn't been limited, that uh, no life would be spared. That it would have killed us all. I was curious about those horns, especially the one that came up later. The Ancient of Days also confused him. In verse 22 he said, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. He noticed that the arrival and judgment of God caused a sudden reversal and brought them into the kingdom. So he wanted to know how that worked also. Therefore, the being he was talking with, probably an angel, responded to him. Said, Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. He explained that that fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom, Rome, which was different from all the others. It'll be a world-conquering superpower. Now, there's some debate among scholars whether world means the entire globe um, or whether world is equivalent to the Roman Empire. That actually makes some sense to me because there seem to be conflicting spheres of influence in the tribulation. You know, the Roman Empire has one set of goals. There's also a power to the east. There's also a uh, power to, uh, to the far north of Israel. And they seem to be at odds. So to envision the Antichrist as running all of the planet is a little hard to do. Because how do we explain then the contradictory goals? So it's possible to take the term world in terms of the civilized world at that time, which would have been the Roman Empire. Outside of that area, eh, barbarians, write them off. Uh, it was kind of the Roman attitude. Okay. So... The ten horns then, the being went on to explain, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will set for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. So the angel explained that the fourth kingdom, Rome, will eventually form a ten-nation form. Now, that hasn't happened in any, at any point in time in history that we've seen yet. But it appears that after it's a form, taken that ten-nation form, uh, that another king will arise and assume power, and that he's actually going to be resisted by three nations, and he's going to overthrow them. That coming world ruler is the one we're looking at here. Now, 
Uh, right now, uh, I think the number is actually close to 20 now. Okay, so there's a lot of nations in there. I remember when it was around 10, everybody got all excited. You know, because we were going, hmm. You know, and uh, now another thing that's arisen is they have European commissioners. And there is a commission of commissioners. Right now, I think the number of commissioners is eight or nine. And so the thought is, well, maybe they would be ten commissioners. Those could be the kings. Uh, how this will work out ultimately, I don't know. Uh, but I know it will. At some point, it's going to assume a ten-nation form. Ten kings subservient to that one king. Um, whether the European Union is the institution that gives rise to this, or whether it's just a forerunner, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way I I prefer to look at it. You know, for clarity's sake, is that it's you know it's a beginning. Um, I don't know that we're going to actually see this form until such time as the Antichrist assumes power. And I don't think the church is going to be here, as I explained, you know, last uh, couple weeks ago. So, this guy has had a lot of names. Daniel's called him the little horn here. He's called him the prince who is to come in chapter 9. Paul called him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. John's titles, I think, though, have really stuck. And that in 1 John, he calls him the Antichrist. Um, the Greek preposition anti, which is put on front of Christos here, can mean two things. It can mean against, and certainly is against Christ, or it can mean in place of. The one who tries to usurp Christ's position and claims. He also calls him the beast in Revelation 13, which ties right back to this chapter. So he's got a lot of different names. But he's all the same, it's all the same person, the Antichrist. Now the angel gave Daniel three characteristics about this coming leader. First, the leader speaks blasphemy, blasphemously against the Most High. Paul prophesied that Antichrist would be, quote, he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Which, by the way, an implication there is that the temple's going to be rebuilt at some point. Don't know whether that's going to be before the church is gone or not, you know, but it could be. So keep your eye on uh, the Temple Mount in Israel. Things are going to happen there. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. The Apostle John writes concerning the Antichrist that he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. That's from Revelation 13. So the Antichrist's career is going to take a turn for the worst when he declares himself to be God. Moves into the temple tries to, and tries to proclaim himself God. Secondly, this person is going to wage war on God's people. Revelation 13 again, John said, It is given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. John also recorded that when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God 
and because of the testimony they had maintained. Third, the angel said, he will intend to make alteration in times and in law. He's going to make sweeping changes that will try to shape history and law to his liking. Daniel had said earlier, it is he, that is God, who changes the times and the epochs. I don't think that refers to daylight savings time or trying to change holidays. I think that this refers to trying to make history flow the way you want it to. So it's, you know, he's saying, nope, that's God's prerogative. It's not going to work for him. But he's going to try. He's going to try to alter times and law. Uh, he's going to try to remake the world in his image. Because he's forgetting that God is he who removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel 2. Hmm. The angel explained that, that this that his time, rather, would be limited to three and a half years, or, as Daniel puts it, a time, times, and half a time. Uh, we would be scratching our head about exactly what that meant, except that Daniel 12 defines it. In Daniel 12, verses 7, 11, and 12, uh, he defines a time, times, and half a time as 12, 1290 days. Okay, in Revelation um, 11, he defi uh, John defines it as 42 months, or 1260 days. Now, where does Daniel get the extra 30 days in chapter 12? I don't know. That's one I'm still scratching my head over. Uh, but basically, three and a half years would be 1260 days. This must refer to the time then from the middle of the tribulation, when the Antichrist declares himself God and he takes a turn against Israel and starts persecuting Israel. So, at that point, then his true nature is, is evident. The angel explained that God's judgment would be against him. His rule would be taken away and his kingdom destroyed forever. Then, he switches gears to talk about the everlasting kingdom. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. You notice how he keeps coming back to that. Every time, every time we turn around, we're back to the same thing. But the point is, all this... All these human empires, they're all temporary. Even this horrible one of Rome that's going to do all this stuff, it's going to be destroyed. And the kingdom that comes, God's kingdom, is going to go on forever. At this point, Daniel says the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale. But I kept the matter to myself. So the vision ended with those words echoing in Daniel's mind about the kingdom that is to come. And he was really unsettled by the experience. But he kept the matter to himself. So how do we apply this? Well, there's a bunch of prophetic applications, obviously. Two main ones that I'd, I would suggest to you if you like keeping your eye on the prophetic timetable. Rome's going to revive. So keep your eye on the European Union. Things are going to happen there. Whether it happens soon or, or later, it's going to happen. God's forever kingdom is coming and all else passes away. 
all else. Even my beloved United States of America will not endure forever. The kingdom of God will. Personal application. If you don't know Jesus Christ yet as your Savior, be a really good time to trust Him <laughs> so that you're ready when He comes for His church. Because you do not want to go through the tribulation. You do not want to uh, make that event. If you do know Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to live a life that will qualify you to reign with Him. He holds that out as a very real reward. And man, the best thing you could do for your career, for eternity, <laughs> is to reign with Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this glimpse that you give us of the, into the future. Thank you, Lord, that we not going to be taken by surprise by events, but we know where this is heading. Father, I just pray that we would be a people that would honor and serve you right now, even as in, in, the, in the far future all will eventually. But may we do it willingly now so that we can join in joyfully in your reign. Your church says, come, Lord Jesus. And we wait for you. In your name we pray. Amen.